Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're joined by very special guest, Chris Doe, the founder and CEO of Blind and the Future. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. We are super excited to talk to you today, Chris. I've been following you from the, uh, from the nosebleed seats for what seems like, I feel like it was in 2015 I first came across you, maybe it was 2016. And my experience was I came across a YouTube video of you teaching what looked like a class to a room full of maybe 60 or 70 people. And you were talking about how to price a logo. And I have shared that video probably a hundred times with specific individuals in my pricing work because I usually help developers and designers, uh, not as much. And I just was so happy to come across that video so that I had a resource to point people to. And at the time, I understood you to be the sort of CEO of this big uh, design agency, Blind. You know, you did client work, at least that's how it appeared from the outside. I think I actually got an email announcement about a particular launch of the future, no E. And it was like an amazing, beautiful site that was just full of resources specifically for designers. It wasn't for clients. And I was just so fascinated by this shift. I was wondering if you were going to keep blind, if you were going to just do the future, like what the whole thing was there. So we wanted to have you come on the show to talk about not just your ideas that you share with people, because I think it's just tons of solid gold in there, but also the overall business, how you view the two businesses, how you made the transition, the genesis of the whole thing. That's just context for the listener. So could you maybe start with, you know, for folks who are just encountering you for the first time, just a, a quick idea of your background, who you are, what you do, that sort of thing. Okay. I'm a traditionally trained graphic designer. I graduated from Art Center College of Design with a degree in graphic design and packaging of all things. And that was in 1995. I was just on the cusp of something brand new emerging on the scene. It later became known as motion graphics. And it's something I immersed myself in. Super fascinated by this field, mostly because... I felt that I was hitting the edges of what graphic design could do in terms of what it would challenge me to do. But this motion graphics thing incorporated cinema, editing, visual effects, animation, all kinds of things that I loved and knew nothing about. And that's what I plunged myself into for the next 20 plus years. So Blind exists as a service company and we mostly work with advertising agencies and sometimes big artists like Coldplay, Norris Barkley or Justin Timberlake. But that was the first part of my career. The transition happened, and there were two transitions that I could point to that are pretty important inflection points in our company. As the demand for commercials started to recede and go away, I, I felt like I needed to do something different. That's when we started to branch off and do brand strategy, design consulting, and had to learn all kinds of new things in order to survive. During that time, I met a gentleman, his name is Jose Caballero, and he's a friend of mine from school. We had not spoken for close to 20 years, but we got together and he started talking to me about designing websites and this framework he's been developing. It coincidentally happened that he was also producing videos on YouTube as a means to promote the products and the events he was producing. He, he dragged me very reluctantly to appear on camera, and this is something I was super uncomfortable with because... I'm a behind the camera kind of guy. So those first few episodes were me dipping my toes into what was going to become the future. Now, Jose and I ultimately split paths because we differed in vision, tactics, and 
just even our work ethic were so wildly different. I'm not saying one is right or better, but it was incompatible. So we split and that's when I started the future and that was in 2016. What is the goal? What is the vision for the future? The goal for the future, and, and this is the big lofty goal, and there's two parts to it. One is to impact the lives of a billion people on planet Earth. And I'm mostly targeting creative people to empower them with business knowledge and also design stuff to help them live a creative life. And I think it's important that we have more creative people, especially to solve some of the most perplexing problems facing humankind. I would like to be able to do that so that they can live out their, their life and their passion and their vision. And the other part is, I think as a consequence of impacting these lives is, I hope to be able to disrupt the entire educational model. I think it's existed for way too long and its purpose is to create human machines to compete against robots. And I think that is a travesty for the human mind and the human spirit. And I think what we need to do is to instill creativity way back into like preschool. But I'm going to start at what I would consider the college level to teach design, to experiment with models, learning models, and also distance-based learning, and to try to create this hybrid model where you get the best of both worlds. And we want to leverage all the technology that's available from video production, virtual reality, augmented reality, to incorporating game concepts and to do things in a way that is accessible by as many people as possible. One of the crazy things that we believe is that we want to give away as much as possible for as little as possible while sustaining our business. That echoes sentiments that we've that have been shared on the show before by us and by guests. I love the idea of sharing as much as you can to create an impact, to spread the big idea. But you do have to fund the mission somehow. Some people, I think a little bit more mercenary type of mentality will look at all of the, you know, this podcast that we're doing right now. It's like, well, they're just doing that so they can sell their stuff. And it, it's really not, it's really not. Like we all know that stuff will sell, yes, but that's set up there so that we can keep doing this. It's the other way around. And I think that's a really important distinction because it changes the tone. It does. You know, you invited me graciously onto your live stream a couple of weeks ago, which was just an amazing experience. You were in a big studio. There were at least four other people there uh, running the boards and stuff. So, I mean, that's that's not cheap. So what's your plan there? Yes. So our, our burn rate is actually quite high. And I've been bootstrapping this entire operation from personal savings, from some of the revenue that's been generated by the future through generous donations from people and the community that supports us. And the other half, which really comes from Blind, because we exist in the building that Blind as a service company pays for, and we pay Blind back subsidized rent, if you will, uh, in order for this to exist. But we're, we're in an important transition period, and I think this is where we're most vulnerable. As we're starting to wind down our service work, on the Blind side, there's going to be a financial gap and I'm redirecting the creative team, the entire creative team, which will be about 12 people, to only work on the future. And just to give it some context, okay, so I have roughly about six months of runway left and before I have to invest another giant chunk of money. And we feel that it, it is sustainable and will be sustainable, but we're in a very vulnerable position right now. Now, four years ago, when I was working with Jose, the very first year, we grossed $17,000 running what was then called the school, now the future. And this year, we should do somewhere close to $1.6 million. So we're growing. 
We're not like a, a charity. We're not a nonprofit. We exist to make money, but we use that money to reinvest in the educational model and to hire more content creators. Yeah, it really shows. That one episode that we did together, because it was a live stream on YouTube, and I had never done anything to speak of on YouTube. I posted a couple of screencasts years ago that you got views or whatever, but I really hadn't done that much on YouTube. And I was under the impression from just sort of popular opinion that, you know, YouTube comments are just full of trolls and it's like, uh, you don't read the comments. You just, and I, my hat's off to you because your audience was thoughtful and polite and generous. And it was just amazing. I had a blast going through the comments and like responding to people and having conversations in there. I was like, oh, YouTube's not that bad. Right. <laughs> you know, here's what I think. YouTube can be a pretty crazy place, but it's, I think for whatever reason, it's safer to be on YouTube than it is on Twitter. And because the trolls go hard on Twitter because they can type in something and just walk away and leave a hand grenade in your lap. Right. And there are fewer tools for me to moderate. Whereas if somebody's being super belligerent, totally disrespectful, racist, sexist, or whatever it is, I can just block them from the channel and nobody will ever see their comment again. They won't know anything. They'll just wonder like why nobody ever comments on their trolling. And that's fine. So we tend to do a pretty good job of policing that. And if somebody's going to say something critical, that's fine. If you don't like it, that's fine. As long as it's constructive, I'm okay with that. And I, I was like you. And I don't think you're alone in thinking. I think YouTube is full of teenage boys in the basement of their parents' place trying to figure out their lives. And that's what I thought initially. And boy, was I wrong. There's a wonderful community on YouTube. And there are even clients and agency owners who watch the channel. I'm only shocked when I bump into them in real life. and like, hey, love that episode. Because you can never tell. They never comment. They never say anything anywhere else, but they watch. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you did send out an announcement email that the future was, there was some sort of launch event. There was some point where you were like, this is a thing. I think so. Mm -hmm. Were you concerned about how your blind clients, so to speak, were going to react to that? Like, oh, is he, you know, not, is he giving us less attention now or... Was there any impact from that? Did you worry about that? Is that something that you tried to manage? Mm. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, in the very beginning, I was very reluctant to get on YouTube because of that very reason, because I was afraid. Knowing how my mouth works, I'm going to say whatever it is I think and be very honest and transparent, and it's going to get me in trouble. So when Jose said, let's get on the channel, I said, easy for you to say, you have no clients, and you just want to create product and create controversy. I have to live with the consequences of what I have to say. And so in the first, I would say half a dozen episodes, I was really tight on camera. I was very deliberate in everything I said. And I have to tell you, and I tell this story, I would wake up the next day after um, a stream and my jaw would just hurt. It was because I was clenching my teeth together. I didn't even know it. And over time, it's like everything. The worst that you fear never materializes. And if you have the courage to create content, it will be okay. As long as you don't go out of your way to hurt people. And I think that's the key. So the other thing I realized too is our clients are multi-billion dollar companies. They're CMOs, CEOs. They're not going to be watching YouTube, especially not on the things that we talk about. But I got to tell you, there's a funny story. A couple years ago, a fan of the channel who was a client called us. And my executive producer said, Chris, there's a fan. They want to talk to you. It's about a new project. I was like, shoot. If they're a fan of the channel, then they know every tactic that I've been right. teaching them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the heck am I going to do? I don't have to Jedi Knight this level three or something because 
holy cow, what am I gonna do? So I took that call with a little bit of apprehension. We get on the phone, besides introducing ourselves and saying hello, the other person began to talk about their project in the way that I would have structured the conversation without me saying a single thing. And I was just like looking at the other creators in the room like, what are we witnessing here? <laughs> they are selling themselves to us using our own questions against themselves without me even saying a word. So we hung with the phone. We're like, oh my God, if all our clients call this this way, this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. So all that fear was for not. And I have yet to face one client of ours who said, you know, uh, that video rubbed me the wrong way. Or are you really focusing on the client work or our work or our account? And they never have said anything. In fact, it's the opposite reaction. Now I run into design directors from multinational agencies where they come in and they're like, hey, Chris, we got a project for you. Got to talk. And they're handing us million dollar projects and saying, we can't do this. Would you like to do this for us? It's the authentic visibility. I think so. Yeah. It's now now you're a, a celebrity in your niche and they they appreciate your thinking. Now they wouldn't if they didn't like your thinking. Yes. Right. You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm still uncomfortable with that term celebrity. I was introduced uh, to a bunch of creatives from the Hulu team. Uh, they were having a retreat on the beach. And they introduced me as a, like a really great design celebrity. I'm like, Wait, who are they talking about? I'm here. And I'm looking around the room like, oh, is that me? <laughs> so it's still something I'm getting used to. I think I saw that you have an interview with Seth Godin coming up. And you've been talking to Gary Vee. And yeah, I mean, and, and the stuff that you're putting out, it's fascinating because I am not a designer. Like, I am. Not even close, Jonathan. Not, not even close, right? Yeah. That's not a humble brag. The opposite of a designer. <laughs> right. Like I'm Google, like put something out there that's utilitarian and fix it on the fly. I just don't, I think it's super valuable. Don't get me wrong. I just know that to do it right. So here's, here's the way I approach it. I'd rather not do it than do a mediocre job. I think that's a fantastic philosophy. Oh, good. Cool. I'm going to keep not doing it. Yes. <laughs> because to do it right is very expensive. And it's like, well, okay, I, I believe that that's a good investment and so on and so forth. But I'd rather take those resources and put them out elsewhere, creating more free content that's just black text on a white background. It looks like my website looks like a Word document. Um, but you can read <laughs> Yes, I get your email blast. I'm like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. Yeah, I just don't yeah. want to spend resources that way because for me, it's just not a natural fit. So I would have to pay someone a lot to, to do a good job there. And it's just not where I want to spend the resources. But the stuff that you guys do, I want to like lick the screen. It's like when the future site came out, I'm like, oh, this is the perfect color scheme. How can I, uh, if I ever, I can't, now I never can design my site because I'm going to end up copying this. Yeah. For people listening, they've got an authority business. Maybe they've got a, a book that is in them or a book that just came out or, you know, something like that. And they've got this big idea and they want to bring it to the masses. What I want to say is, can you get away with a site like mine or if you, they want to get to celebrity status, do you believe that you really have to, to take that step and invest in the design of it? Can the content stand on its own, do you think, to reach the masses? Or do you think that there needs to be you know, something on the level of what you guys do to break through? Right. So I think this is a trap question. So I'm going to walk into this very gingerly. So because my designer friends will listen to this and say, what did he just say? I think content trumps 
production value, 1,000%. So if you do something typeset in Courier in 72 points and you just created the most impactful words on a page, then that's what you do. And if you shoot your video on an iPhone or other smartphone and it's not 100% perfect, that what you say and how you come across on the camera is more important than anything else. Now, having said that, all things being equal, especially when you're speaking to a design community and trying to say, look, I am you, you are me, and we celebrate design, but let me try and teach you to speak the other language of business so that you can become bilingual. I think it's important for us to design. Now, here's the interesting thing, because we get into these conversations with my managers, right? We produce incredible motion graphics, super complicated visuals for clients like Xbox and Sony and car companies like Ford, right? We do that. But when it comes to our own videos, we just do what we think is the bare minimum viable product. We're not spending that time to juice it up with crazy elaborate motion graphics and visual effects tricks and 3D animation, mostly because we are interested in creating more content to help more people and I think, and that's the model we're going down. But then take a guy like Andrew Kramer of Video Copilot. He only releases a video every other month or something like that. And he has a massive following. So there are different strategies and it depends on who you're talking to and what they relate with. So for him, he's a visual effects guy. So he needs to drop some juicy, crazy tutorial and bring all the production value that he's known for. And we're a little bit different. We're trying to tell creatives I think at a certain level, you're good enough. Now, we need to teach you this other stuff because this is what they don't teach in school and it's what's going to hold you back in your business endeavors. At a certain point, like you said, good enough. At a certain point, when people feel stuck in their business, they think, oh, I just need to get better at my craft. They take 80% and they try to take 80% to 100% and become perfect at whatever it is, motion design, let's say, or web design or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, I'm not getting unstuck. I'm working my fingers to the bone, uh, I'm making less money every year, I'm getting undercut by amateurs, so on and so forth. I think that makes perfect sense. You know, you've got a particular audience. It's like when I used to do uh, web design as a consultant, uh, not web design, but like responsive web design. So consulting for that, I wasn't the designer, I was more of the mechanics. And I knew, because people would tell me, they would come to my site and they would view source and be like, oh, well, phew, you think you're so smart. You know, you tell us to do this, but your site doesn't have it. You know, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> like when you're operating in the medium with the medium, you're under a microscope to a certain extent. Yeah. I, I wanted to add one other thing. There's a, a company out there called Masterclass. And what they have is they have the most famous people with incredible production value and editing. And it, their site is super slick. We look at their site and we say, wow, what a great job. But then people that I know have subscribed to Masterclass. And I said, so how was your class? They're like, meh. I feel like I watched a documentary film of Gordon Ramsay and actually learned more from his other shows than I did in the class. And so I was thinking, I wonder why that is. So with all that production value and talent and money and resources that they have to produce these videos, at the end of the day, what they need to find are great teachers. And because you're famous doesn't make you a great teacher. Now, that's a broad statement. And I understand there are some great pieces of content there. And I'm not trying to hate on them. I'm just trying to illustrate the point that you can chase that pixel and you can polish that thing to it's super shiny. But if you don't, at the end of the day, deliver something that your consumers or your audience find to be very valuable to help them in their pursuit, then it's really not worth much.
Well, it's that alignment. It's the alignment between you and your audience and the authentic expression of you. So in our example, like Jonathan, if Jonathan all of a sudden came out with these, you know, million dollar graphics, I think his audience would go, what? Is this the right website? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the flip side for your audience, I'm really intrigued by this because I imagine a bunch of designers getting together. It's really easy to critique your design. Yes. Right. And, and so- they do. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How does that get in the way of their getting into the business courses in particular? Um, sometimes it gets in the way. And here's the interesting thing. So we have this video on a typography critique. And in that video, I did some things that I could not resolve on the show because we're just going through four different critiques. And it was a reference to something that Joseph Mueller Brockman had done. And I said, guys, this works. It worked in the 70s or, uh, when he did it, and he'll work. And this particular video has so much anti-hate design comments on it. And, and I was telling my team, gosh, man, maybe I should take this video down because it, it wasn't fully resolved and they don't understand that. And the funny thing is we just checked the stats on that thing. It has one of the highest subscriber rates of the videos that we have. So I can't totally figure it out that even though they're very vocal, it's not that they're vocal and they hate you. They're just vocal like, hey, I think I know more about this than you do in this particular instance. But they still subscribe and they still watch, which I'm still trying to resolve in my mind. Like, hmm, how does this thing even work? So not everything as it is as it appears, right? So even though they can hate on that, it's okay. I, I would rather, I guess, have somebody talk about something because they like it or dislike it than not to talk about it at all because we just played it really safe. And the whole intent of that video was to say, yeah, this is a good layout. I started off by saying it was a good layout, but let's try something. Let's, let's push the boundaries. And when I was teaching at Art Center, the big problem was students were afraid to take those kinds of chances. So during any one of our live streams where I'm working uh, kind of in the flow, it's like, yeah, we're not always going to produce great things, but I would just want to show you how my mind works and the things I'm willing to try to find what works and what doesn't work. The fear comes from the fact that they know people like them will jump all over them. It's like a paradox almost. It's like if you're the kind of person that's going to hate on somebody, then you're like afraid to get hated on. And at some point you need to have the courage to put the idea out there anyway, whatever it is. And I love the word courage specifically because it means acting in the face of fear. It's not that the fear goes away. It's that you act anyway. At the beginning, we were talking about fears that you had that starting the future that were completely unfounded. And we also both talked about going on YouTube and expecting haters everywhere, like lurking around every corner and trolls and all that. And it didn't, I mean, I'm sure they're there, but it didn't happen to me. So it's like these fears are and the worries that keep people from putting their ideas out in the world or taking a chance, or taking a risk, like, oof, that's scary stuff. And when you think about it at scale, like all these people who might have a really, really, who, who almost surely have something to contribute that are holding it back because of their they're just afraid to get uh, negative feedback. Like with what you're doing, what we're doing, a lot of this has to do with your motivation and your intent. So our motivation is to try to help the larger global design community get a little bit better at design, but get a lot better at business. And so if somebody's going to hate me and if that's the, the, the litmus test of whether or not I'm going to go through with this or not, then my desire, my my willingness to, to see it all the way through is actually very thin. 
And so people over time can see that, wow, this guy, he may come across as a little bit of a jerk. He might talk a little bit fast on certain things. And boy, isn't he full of himself? Then eventually, and I saw a comment recently, they're like, hey, I didn't like you at the beginning. Six episodes in, I'm hooked on your channel, man. <laughs> and that's okay. So we know our, our unsubscribe rate is actually pretty high and we get that, but we're for everybody else and we cannot be all things to all people. And if you're willing to stick around, I promise you, you'll be rewarded. Whereas if you're doing something and your motivation is to get famous, to be liked, to be popular, to do things that are easy, to stroke your ego, if you will, well, then when these comments come in and inevitably they will come in, if you're doing anything remotely interesting, you're going to fall like a house of cards. So really, if your motivation is to share and to help people, critique me all you want. I really don't care because I'm for all the other people who type in, thank you, you've helped me, you've inspired me, I wanted to quit design or you helped me to land a job. And we see those comments all the time. Well, I think that's the challenge of living a creative life and doing creative work is if you're not going to put your work out there, you're never going to get your ideas shared. You'll never get anywhere. 100%. You've illustrated it already that even with client work, you have differentiated yourself in this way that is, it's surprising that, that the future would differentiate you in a way that was beneficial to blind, but it makes you stand out, you know, call it celebrity or whatever. You're apart from the herd, so to speak. You're different. Like you stand out. There's a, there's a, a brand there stand for something. You know, it's just, it's just not another guy or another girl who does design it's like, no, this is Chris from Blind. That's who we want. You turn yourself into a category of one for the people who get you. And you give enough of yourself online, whether it's YouTube or wherever else, that they know whether or not they get you. And for the folks who do click with you, I mean, if they're considering other options, it's, it's, probably, it's probably unlikely that they're even considering other options. Right. I think one of the other things, and I can probably go down a pretty long list of things about why you want to put yourself out there, but one of the things is it builds a bridge between where you are and where you want to be and the people you want to be around. I'm talking to you today, not because I have this service company. I'm going to be talking to Seth Godin again because of this bridge that has been built, because what I want to do is aggregate crazy influential smart people together to share their ideas and resources with a much larger community that's out there. And I think to a degree, a lot of people want a platform to speak on. So I've created that for them. And I'm bringing our audience into that mix or that conversation so that everybody benefits. That's something I, I would have not have thought about at the very beginning, because the beginning of all new endeavors, things that scare us, we mostly focus on the negative aspects, what we have to lose. But if we sat down for a minute and you were talking about courage, sometimes the courage comes from you just putting a hold on what could go wrong and then focusing on, well, what would happen if this worked out? <laughs> right? Like, oh my gosh, I might be able to talk to this person and that person. And we have an incredible, I, th I think it's called like an ice bucket list or something like that, where we said in two years, like what could possibly happen that we would all want? We just made the most audacious list of things. And the scary part, Jonathan, is I get to check these things off every once in a while. I'm like, God, it's scary when you actually hit your goals. No, I can't tell you just yet what one of these goals is, but we're really, really freaking close to actually smashing it. And people would have laughed, and they actually did chuckle a little bit when I wrote it on the board, but I still remember it. So we'll see. We'll see. So you'll know when, when I hit that goal, 
You're like, okay, now I know what he was talking about. And that was a pretty audacious goal. Hey, Chris, one of the things that's intriguing, I think, to our audience is that you've done these two endeavors with teams. You know, you didn't just say, oh, I'm going to go out and do this on my own and maybe uh, try to build a tribe around it. You actually have colleagues, associates, you've had a partner. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy about when you decide to work with other people versus when you do something on your own? I think earlier, Jonathan, you said something like, I don't do it if I'm mediocre at it, right? Or something like that. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I wrote that down. I was like, I have the same statement, except for my mine veers to a different direction. I don't do it if I can pay someone else to do it better than me. So from the very beginning, when I started my company back in 1995, as soon as I got work, I was like, you know what? I need to hire somebody to do this. And I would look. So at the very beginning, they were not better than me. And what I would do is I would art direct them so that it appeared as if I did all the work. And eventually when I could afford more and my network grew, I found people who were much better at doing stuff than me. And I just kept hiring them. So I didn't know anything about sales. So I hired an executive producer. I didn't know how to produce jobs. I hired a producer. I didn't know anything about business. So I hired a business coach. This is something I think that entrepreneurs and people who are going to be very successful in life, they have a similar mindset, which is I'm willing to invest in myself and it takes money to make money. So you can sit there and cling to every single dollar that you have and be that sole artist. And that's fantastic if that's good for you. But I'm trying to help other people realize that the value that can be created just by hiring other people, because what you're doing is you're buying back your time to do the things that you can't hire other people to do. And that's priceless. I think so. So I get to travel the world. I get to read books. I get to have conversations like the one I'm having with you right now while the engine and the machine keeps running. And it's fantastic. So I have to ask the question. It's probably an obvious question, but what are the things you can't outsource? I think the vision, the planning. I always tell the, the people, I'm not the captain on the boat. That's the management team. I'm not the guys who set the sail or or steer the boat even. I'm the person up in the crow's nest looking beyond the horizon, trying to spot where land is and trying to give the team information. And collectively, we agree to move a specific direction. Something that's quite scary for uh, people is that I don't have that exact map on how to go from A to B. I know where B is, and sometimes we might have a bad day where the, the wind isn't blowing or we're pushed off course, and we know that we have to make a lot of turns, but we'll eventually get to B. And so sometimes it looks like we're going the wrong way, but in fact, we're always making progress. For your audience, what are some of the big, maybe counterintuitive or bigger ideas that you present to them that just blow their minds? I feel like I'm throwing you a softball because I saw a video, uh, I think came out the other day about designers not needing a portfolio. I'm curious what ideas like that that you bring to the audience that really make them just almost force them to shift their mindset to think about things in a new way. Well, I think there are a lot of things that we take to be gospel and to be true, whether somebody actually taught us this or we just learned it just by observation, in fact, are not true at all. I recently gave a talk and I was making some observation about paradoxes that we think to sell, we need to sell. And I said, you can sell more if you unsell. And they're sitting there like, what? Well, when you try not to sell yourself, you will close more clients. Because 
the last thing that we all want to do is be sold something. So when somebody actually very confidently says, maybe we're not a good fit, let me try and understand what it is that you're trying to do. I know four people who could probably do this. And to even use your line of questioning, why this, why now, why me? That's a great way of unselling yourself so that the other person has to lean in and decide for themselves whether or not you're a good fit. And that is counterintuitive to most people in the way they understand of selling because that's not a model we've seen very often. Well, that's one thing we talk about. We talk about why your resume is totally irrelevant in today's age, especially if you're a creative person because we have so many ways of judging whether or not you're a good fit for us and a piece of paper, it, it's just words. And where, where you went to school might say a little bit about you but it doesn't tell me if you're any good. So I get to look at your portfolio. I get to look at your website or whatever it is or, or your code if, if I'm a developer. I can see the work product. So I, I tell creatives, don't spend any time working on that resume. And that's a mechanical thing that you were taught to do from somebody that doesn't know how the world works. And another thing is that it doesn't take a thousand pieces for you to get hired. It takes three. Three shows me that you can consistently deliver. So if you go in and you pad your portfolio out with tons of things that are irrelevant, then I start to get concerned because I don't, at this point, focus on what's good. I focus on like, gosh, that turned out pretty poorly. And if I hire you, will you do A or will you do that thing that looks like a piece of junk? So again, less is definitely more. And, and try not to confuse me as a potential employer with so much work that is so all over the place that I can't remember a single thing that you did. So this is about drilling down and showing off your T-skill, and that's really important as well. So there are a lot of little things that are shifts, and if you're able to wrap your head around that, the kinds of changes that you can have in your life and your career can be monumental. I will tell you one little story. I have a friend, I'm coaching her. Her name's Carrie. And for the longest time, Carrie told me there is a ceiling on how much she can charge based on the vertical that she's in. What Carrie later on discovers, because I talked to somebody else and, and they're in the exact same space as her. And I go back and I tell her, my goodness, what you told me was the maximum $6,000. This other person's getting 20 to 30. And she goes, wait a minute, hold on a second. I don't believe that at all. So she goes and looks at the person's website. And in fact, they do the exact same thing for the exact same clientele. So from that day forward, she started to double her rates. And it took a year and a half of talking to her and she just wouldn't believe me. Finally, I tell her a story and then now she's able to double her rates and she's like, gosh, I wonder how much money I've left on the table. So here's the interesting part. I asked Carrie, I said, Carrie, what's different about you? She goes, what do you mean? Well, is your site different? Did you change your website? She goes, no. Did you add new case studies? Did you write something different? Is the message, did you change your logo? No. Did you change anything? She goes, no. So what changed? She said, I don't know. You changed, my dear. You changed. <laughs> mm -hmm. You said it was possible. Now, I don't want to be cruel to you, Carrie, but I could have made up the whole story. <laughs> that is the power of belief. Okay, so I'm a graphic designer, right? So if you look at the word belief, the word lie is in the word belief. So belief for a lot of people is the lie you tell yourself about what you can't do. Good one. I see the same thing all the time. I mean, my main focus is pricing and I get people, it all walks, all walks of life, all different kinds of careers come to me all the time. Oh, it's different for me because my vertical or my horizontal is it's commoditized. 
I just did a, a sequence on photographers. I have a whole bunch of new photographers on my list from showing from going on your live stream. <laughs> and and they need help. Like, it's not it's not commoditized, it's homogenized. Everybody's looks the same, everybody's doing the same thing, everybody's using the same templates and the same Lightroom plugins and the same poses and the same business model and same, 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 same. It's sort of like everybody's copying each other and it's not working for everybody, but they all think they're doing it right because it's just like everybody else. And then along comes a bunch of replies on the list. You know, so, you know, I, I write these emails, I say more or less what I just said, and I get a bunch of replies from people who are like, oh yeah, I charged $90,000 for a wedding. And they're all on my list. And I'm like, oh, this person right here figured it out. And like these 17 people, they just think that uh, they need to quit and do something else. It's like this self-limiting belief. It's your belief, it's your it's, belief system. Yeah, the lack of courage, a lack of vision, um, the fear of doing something really specific. So like specializing or picking a niche or pigeonholing yourself as like, I just do same-sex weddings in Key West. And you're like, oh, that would never be a big enough market. Like, yeah, but you could charge $80,000 a wedding. I use Danny Leibovitz as, a, as an example because I, she's the most famous photographer I could think of. And I was like, she wasn't born the Annie Leibovitz TM. <laughs> Somehow she became the Annie Leibovitz. So I guarantee you she's not having downward pressure on her prices. I mean, I, I can't know that, but... I'm sure she's not starving. So figure out, like, what is the thing? What is your, what's your big idea, your vision, your mission, your purpose? What are you doing with your photography? What is it? You don't have to be like everyone else. In fact, you better not be. I don't know. I feel like I'm soapboxing, but. No, no, it's totally true. And, and Jonathan, when we talk to people, we say, you know, the, the business tools, they're pretty straightforward. The miracle is when you're going to use those tools. So we have to focus a lot on the mindset. And I'm an amateur psychologist, right? I mean, what are we doing here? Because I need to help each person and they have different levers to get unstuck. Some people need me just to rip them a new one. While some people need that gentle coddling or for me to tell them a story or something or somebody else to tell them it works. And for each person, it's a different trigger point. But if I could say to everybody in the audience that's listening to this, Everything that you believe is possible is possible, and everything that you believe isn't is not. So it's really kind of up to you. Now, if we say to creatives, that's the maximum you can charge, the first thing I would ask them is, how often are people saying no to your price? So if you get too many yeses, it's time to change your rates. That's for sure. That's an easy one. And what they're afraid of is that that one no is the beginning of the end for them. That one client says no, hire somebody else, and then that's that's the end of their life. And they put so much weight on getting yeses all the time that they're willing to do just about anything to hear that yes. Lower their price, increase the scope, make all kinds of accommodations, and continue to work on it with unlimited revisions. That's crazy to me. Yeah, and they're like, I'm so busy, I can't make a living. Yeah. Right. It's like, And so many people are stuck like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an old joke. I think I heard Blair Enns tell it the first time where he says, I told my barber to double his rates. And he said, double my rates, I'd lose half my clients. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that. It's like if you're if you're crazy busy, raise your prices. Mm -hmm. It's like a quick fix. 
Well, I think I just figured out the reason for the T-shirt that's on your site, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about the cocky, the cocky bastard. One. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story behind that one, by the way. I, I, well, I want to hear that because I was just sort of thinking, handing that T-shirt to somebody who doesn't have enough confidence to raise their prices. I, I could, I could see that. Mm-hmm. So the cocky bastard thing, and it's a reflection of my life philosophy is go all in on your strengths. So Jonathan, you like to write, there's a market that you understand and you're not gonna try to be this graphic designer person, right? Right. And and so there's this guy that I I was following on Instagram and he he made this thing, it's like, and it said arrogant a-hole and he didn't say a-hole. And he tagged me on it, like, this one's for that guy. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So I look at him like, hey man, I like your work. I have no hate. If you think I'm an arrogant a-hole, that's fine. So I walk away. I'm like, I still follow you. You still do cool lettering. And I was thinking, arrogant a-hole. I guess that's what a lot of people think. So that's my brand. It just, because I don't swear. Let me just find another term. Let me just describe it a different way. I'm like cocky bastard. So I hired another <laughs> lettering artist to draw that for me. And like make it like it's elegant, like fine dining right, right. restaurant. <laughs> like it's a bottle of champagne, like the best, uh, like vintage cocky bastard, right? And so he did this thing. I'm like, no, no, make it more elegant. I was like, okay. So he makes it. And then I print it out and I do it in gold foil. And I walk around with that t-shirt. And I said, this is, and I tell this story. It's like, this is how you turn haters and into things that you make money on. And now I sell the shirt. I make money off his hate. That's cool. That's that's the story of the cocky bastard. <laughs> and it takes some, some guts, I should say, to wear a shirt like that and just walk around like, whatever, man. Think whatever you want to think. Because your opinion has no bearing on what I think of myself. Oh, well, yeah, that right there. That's uh. <laughs> That's a hard thing for a lot of people, but, and I'm the same as you, like I, I'm not at best armchair psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> at best. And, right. but that's the conversation you end up getting into a lot of times people are like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, just go like this. Like the mechanics are very, very straightforward. You feel them procrastinating, putting it off, not getting around to it. Two weeks go by, oh, you know, life got busy, but I'm like, look, man, if you want to make a change, you got to do this stuff. And you start to get the, well, I'm not sure it's going to work. Well, I'm telling you it's going to work. You're paying me to tell you what works. I'm telling you this is going to work. Yeah, but all right, tell me what the problem is. Well, I'm afraid people are going to think I'm arrogant or I'm afraid that my clients or my other clients are going to see it or I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid I'm going to get a no. All those things, all those fears start coming up and then you're like, oh man, I should have gotten a different degree. (laughs) you know because a lot of times it does boil down to that yes it really does i feel like we're all in the same school where where the answer is in our audience not in us and so our job is to help get the right questions asked so they can find the answers and yes it's to give resources and, and be very specific but it's that it's that extra bit that allows us to help more people than we would otherwise yeah i try to take like as many stabs at success as possible so the person standing there asking me for some help i'll tell them the most logical here's the tool no it didn't work i'll tell you a story and then i'll kick you in the butt and then i'll tell you some somebody else to call or research etc etc so i will do whatever is needed for them to get past that point and it can be exhausting so one one way that i work around this is i find that people who pay more money are more committed to change than the people who pay less money so people who watch YouTube are like, man, they didn't pay anything, so they may or may not make any change. But when they're paying me $1,000 an hour to talk to me, 
I think they're pretty vested in wanting to change because it's foolish. I didn't even tell them up front, if you don't want to change, turn around right now, get a refund on your money and just go about your way because it, it will only work if you want it to work. So here's another thing I tell people about mindset, okay? I said, if somebody came up to you, let's just assume I'm talking to a man and they said, oh, you're like a purple alien from the planet Mars. Would you believe them? Like, no. And somebody would say to you, well, you're like a little girl wearing a tutu. And they're like, no, I don't believe that either. So why is it when somebody tells you you're an arrogant a-hole or whatever, and you believe that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Touche. So, I did not right? know where you're so going with why that. Do you, yeah, why do you open yourself up to that? Okay, so that means that either you believe it to be true or not. Because that's why I say your opinion has no bearing on how I see myself. Because I know who I am. I've spent time thinking about who I am. And I, I now have resolved that in my mind. So when somebody says whatever, the only ones that hurt are the ones I believe to be true. So if you don't believe you're an arrogant a-hole, if you don't believe you're criminal in how you charge, well, then don't worry about what they say. Because it's not true. Right. It's no yeah. more true than if you're a Martian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Man, Chris, this has been fantastic. Where can people go to find out more about you online? I guess the easiest place would be go to thefuture.com. It's the future spelled with no E, like future. Like if we're European, we would say it that way. Um, but they can also find me all over social media. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, on Facebook, and they can find me at the Chris Doe. And that's not a self-aggrandizing thing. It's just because before I couldn't get Chris Doe, somebody took that name. <laughs> well, great. And I highly recommend people check out the YouTube stream. It's just, it's just amazing. It's full of solid gold stuff. Uh, even if you're not a designer, there's a lot of great business advice in there for anybody who's creating anything, which is pretty much everybody, I feel like, these days. And you can kind of see how it works. So that the sort of meta picture that we're talking about here, it's not just the content itself, but also like look at the overall structure of, of what's happening and the conversations that happen and think about how whatever your big idea is and whatever big idea you're trying to put into the world and ideas you're trying to spread, look at how Chris here is doing that. And it seems to be spreading like crazy. I mean, the number of views on these videos is insane. So... Well done. Good job. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank very you. Very well done. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.